Welcome to the Sound Advice podcast. We are Citizens Advice North East Derbyshire. We focus on providing advice for people within the North East Derbyshire and Bolsover district and want to do just that with our podcast. Enjoy! Hello, I want to welcome you again to this episode of Sound Advice. My name is Ben. This time we're talking about our research and campaigns work at Citizens Advice and to talk to me this week is Tom. He's a volunteer with us who's been volunteering for roughly six, seven months and he's been doing some work looking at personal independence payment, which is a disability benefit. Um, so thanks, Tom, for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. We're going to come on to the work that you've done specifically first, but I think it would be a good idea to have a background of what research and campaigns is, first of all. Yeah. So it sounds an alien topic. We used to call it at Citizens Advice social policy. And at its most basic level, social policy work is something that affects our wider community. So it's the work that we do which reflects the problems that is faced by people in the community, why they're coming to Citizens Advice and what is causing the issues that they need advice for. So as I say, there's always some reason someone is going to come to Citizens Advice for advice. That might be a failing with a benefit system at a larger level. It might be at a lower level a problem with an understanding and whether or not a benefit form, for example, is suitably laid out for people with disabilities, as we come on to later. Some of the bigger work that people might have heard of is the research and campaigns that Citizens Advice nationally carried out into universal credit. That's ongoing at the moment with the Keep the £20 Uplift campaign, Keep the Lifeline, as Citizens Advice call it, which is nationally looking at trying to get the government to improve the universal credit situation for people. Locally, we do campaigns work as well. So if we see issues which are affecting our specific local area, we can conduct research into that and then try and campaign for better. I suppose the reason it's important, this research and campaigns work, is because I always explain it that we're trying to put ourselves out of work, that there are problems that people are facing and we aim to resolve them, whatever level they are. So when we come on to talking about your personal independence payment report, that is quite a large issue affecting a large section of society. So the twin aims of citizen advice are firstly that we deal with people at the point of call with the issue that they're presenting with. So that would be, for example, someone coming in with a problem with a utility bill. Uh, it's very current at the moment. Um, we'd look at what was causing that issue. Um, but the, the second of those twin aims is the research and campaigns aspect and dealing dealing with the root cause so if someone's come in with a, a problem with a utility bill we would explore whether there's a problem with the tariff system so for example we know from experience that people who are on prepayment meters are often given less favorable tariffs than people who are free to choose direct debits or have different levels of service for example people who've got smart meters who aren't on prepayment meters but that causes a problem for those people on prepayment meters because there are often reasons why they have a prepayment meter. They're usually people who are on the lower levels of income. They may have had issues with debts before with the utility rates. And so really that system of only then allowing them a prepayment meter to deal with debt puts them at a disadvantage because they're paying higher rates than someone who hasn't had the debt issue. So it's a, a really a self-fulfilling prophecy that to get out of debt, you're on this higher rate of tariff. But in the meantime, you then got 
less disposable income. So then it's we would look if there was enough evidence to show that this was a problem at how we can campaign on that. So how do we lobby um, decision makers nationally and locally to change that system? How do we use the evidence that we've got nationally to lobby energy companies to make a change in their systems and how they operate those sorts of tariffs? So that's the level of research and campaigns work that we do. Um, we do nationally negotiate with government and other stakeholders um, and we negotiate locally with our local MPs to try and lobby in Parliament. Uh, we local lobby with local councillors if it's a, a particularly local issue. So that's a bit of background to research and campaigners' work. Um, and, and, that, a, and that's what we're working on at the moment, isn't it? With this report, trying, it is. to, trying to bring it to local MPs and get some kind of traction. Definitely, yeah. Um, that is what we're trying to do with it. So we, we are, we've put the report out now. It's gone and it's been published. Um, it's been circulated to our local MPs for them to consider and, and hopefully take on board and, and go forward with it, definitely. And, and more nationally, we're sharing it with part of the consultation and the government's green paper. I suppose we'll mention it in a bit later, but the government's put this green paper out into reforming the disability benefits system. And we've submitted this as evidence for that as well. So this is evidence that we found locally being used to influence national policy. So if we come on a bit specifically to the PIP report that is the focus of this podcast today. I suppose the reasoning for it, as I explained to you when you started volunteering this for us, Tom, is that for a long time I personally and a lot of my colleagues locally have known that there have been significant problems with the disability benefit system. Um, now, personal independence payment, as a lot of people listening might know, is a benefit which is designed to help people who have a life-altering condition, which affects either their physical mobility, which affects their ability to function without AIDS adaptations, without problems in the daily life. And it's designed to support those with extra costs of living because there are extra costs. Either you have to adapt transportation-wise, you perhaps have higher fuel costs if you are in the house more regularly because you're housebound. That's a, a benefit which is specifically designed to help people with physical or mental health problems. And it's important to highlight that in light of probably what we'll discuss later, that mental health is included in that descriptor so it's not just for physical issues it's for people with mental health issues and what we've seen time and time again with clients that come to us is that they have a problem with either making an application for it they have a problem with a decision that's been made or challenging a decision that's gone against them so really that's where you come in in, in terms of trying to evidence what we have anecdotally known so that we can actually make something substantial and present that in the form that we have done so do you want to tell us a bit about what you found from coming in from not a benefit background but yep no sure so prior to writing this obviously i'd heard of pip but i i wasn't too familiar with the process so i was just looking through your cases you had on your clients who were going through the application process within the derbyshire region and really just kind of get into grips with what the commonalities were between all these cases and things like that and in terms of key findings, I'd find, I think one thing that kind of leapt out the most was the way in which throughout the process, whether it be in the initial application stage or in the assessment stage, 
or in the mandatory reconsideration stage, yeah. all these different aspects of the application, there was always this element that mental health was not considered to the same extent physical health was. And that's something that ran throughout. And you could see this in the types of questions that the initial form was um, asking. And you could see this in, the, in similarly in the questions asked in the assessment stage. And you also have a lot, there's a lot of clients who have cited their experiences with the application process as being very stressful and something that they couldn't have gone through without the help of citizens advice yeah and something that ex is, it, it become the process itself becomes a exacerbator for mental health issues when it should be a process which is aiming to help these individuals so i think that's um probably something that spoke out most within the research i uh, definitely i mean just to, again, as a bit of background, in the, the process for claiming, as you'll have found from, from your research and from going through it, the process of claiming is that you phone up initially to request a claim form, you get that form sent to you, which consists of about 38, 40 pages worth of, it's, it's called yeah. how your condition it's affects you, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a lengthy thing. Yeah, and the questions in are not necessarily uh, straightforward worded. Sometimes you might think, well, actually... I don't fit into that category because it's asking if I can prepare a meal. But when you look into that issue with a client and you mention the mental health side of it, it doesn't then press the client or the claimant, as we should say, to, to give any more detail necessarily. If they're thinking, well, I, I've managed to cook a meal. And we see this with our clients. They come and say, well, I can manage that. And if you say to them, well, how do you manage it? And say, well, I have to actually spend half an hour working myself up to do it because I don't really feel like doing it because... I have a mental health condition, I feel depressed, I don't really want to cook, can't face managing that. If people have got a physical condition and they are leaning on work surfaces while they're doing it, or they're just pricking a ready meal to put in the microwave because they, they can't lift pots and pans, and that's all they manage. That is the explanation that we, as advisors, are needing to tease out of clients. And that, I think, yeah. as you were alluding to, is where the form falls down, isn't it? Yeah, I think... I think a big thing is where if there is no external help for claimants, it, the process becomes, it's not uh, straightforward and it's not something, it doesn't provide you with a solid basis on which to give the fullest uh, account of your conditions. So it feels like it's kind of, the claimant has to go out of their way to demonstrate how how their conditions affect their day-to-day -day lives rather than it's something that the assessment and application stage kind of gets out of the applicants. It's, it's kind of reversed in that sense. And you said that what stood out to you was that mental health conditions were really at a disadvantage. Is that because yeah. of um, the evidence that you found that the form was inadequate for mental health conditions or is it the experience of the clients that you looked into what stood out for you? Yeah, so it's, I would say it's very much seen throughout the, throughout the process in different ways. So one of the main things in the, in the assessment stage is that a, a lot of the times they'll have assessors who lack training with mental health and they, they may come from physiotherapy backgrounds or such like and it doesn't equip them properly to deal with uh, candidates who have mental health issues and 
this comes through in a, a lot of the uh, citizens advice clients cases when they're discussing it for example one one story that stands out to me is a lady who was she said that in the assessment stage she was you know she was crying really heavily and she felt that she was on the verge of a panic attack mm. and she couldn't breathe and despite this quite visible signs of distress she felt that she wasn't getting much in the way of support from the assessor and they felt quite cold or to quote her being to quote her they felt like a robot and i feel like she she quoted this as a humiliated ex- humiliating experience and i think that this is something that has popped up throughout my research and if the assessment is not facilitating a safe space for people with mental health issues then i do not think it's adequately equipped to help these individuals not fit for purpose yeah Uh, that's exactly what we see we see clients coming who do feel humiliated that is the word they use they feel so demoralized by the process um, that they don't want to go through it again and I think that's a point that your report touches on, that it is a feature of the PIP application and assessment process yep. that people who have gone through it and been knocked back, even though they might, on the face of it, appear to be entitled, can't face going through it again. And it is a battle that we have as an advice organisation is saying, look, financially, this is going to be better off for you. We think that you are entitled but if the clients have had that previous experience, it can be really hard to to explain to them that they can get through it with support. Is that something that you think you found in your research, Tom? Yeah, for sure. And what I do think as well is that obviously once, as you mentioned, a lot of these individuals have been through the process before or some some such, and the frequency with which people have to reapply for PIP is also I think uh, having negative effects on these individuals because it is it's become something where you are constantly having to prove that your kind of entitlement rather than it being a process which is trying to which is obviously trying to help you and help the wider community I think that um, mandatory reconsideration is also something that needs to be reviews is something that is cited by a lot of mental health organizations and just charities in general as being something that is not fit for purpose and you have as little as 15 percent of mandatory reconsiderations being successful which is quite stark in comparison to the figures coming out of tribunals which is as much as 70 percent success rate so this shows how the inbuilt mandatory reconsiderations within the pro- application process are not doing their jobs um, compared to the tribunal. I definitely agree. I think it's worth interjecting there just to say that once an assessment's taken place, if if a client or a claimant is not happy with the outcome of it, either because they've been rejected entirely or because they've not been awarded the rate which they think they should have got, they go through that process of challenging it, which is called mandatory consideration, which is uh, a different decision maker within the DWP looking again at the decision. And as you said, it's really hard to try and get decisions overturned at that stage. For us, as an advice organisation, it feels like a, a rubber stamp exercise that we have to go through before we can get to the actual decision makers at the tribunal service who are independent of DWP to look again at that decision and make one that's more favourable. And as you've highlighted, the success rates of those that process 
proceed, sorry, to appeal are more successful. We get more success at appeal than we do with mandatory reconsideration. But the knock-on of that is the time it takes to go through the appeals process because it's part of the courts and tribunal service, so they've got other work and business to do and they can't deal with the volume of cases coming through. Yeah, and you've also got the um, the, the fact that the tribunals are also funded by by taxpayers so yeah. this is an additional expense that this whole process is adding adding costs into it to the public purse essentially yeah i want to just step back because what something you said a, a little while ago really struck me as well the review process in itself you you mentioned people coming up for reviews and having to go through that review process continually yeah. some people can have reviews within a six months of being awarded the benefit some of them might go a year some three years Longer awards are unusual, but that constant reviewing is a cause of real anxiety for clients. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think it's the fact that it creates periods of financial instability or uncertainty for clients. And you, you've obviously got that financial uncertainty within the initial process, but then to have it repeated on a regular basis exacerbates mental health conditions that these clients have definitely like like you said it's it feeds into feelings of anxiety or nervousness and depression about um your situation exactly because firstly the worry is having to go through that whole process of applying again and having to deal with this assessor that doesn't necessarily understand your condition and isn't necessarily going to be as sympathetic as you would expect and then also am i going to lose out on what is a substantial part of my income and this yep. is the thing with people the benefit is there to help with living costs but then if a decision maker decides actually no you're not entitled anymore despite you having previously been entitled and in a lot of cases your condition not actually improving uh, we stop this award because we've not judged that you are entitled to it anymore and i think that's something that you have found in in the research that you've carried out isn't it yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, then, as you say, they're in this financial, financially unstable situation where that income in itself, substantial, has dropped, but then potentially other sources of income which are dependent on that, other benefit income which might stem from being entitled to PIP, are stopped as well. And you're in the process where you've had a massive knockdown in your, your benefit income. And what do you do for food? What do you do for heating in that process? And we have a lot of clients, unfortunately, who we have to say the best source of support for you at the moment is a food bank because there is no other help until we get these benefits resolved. And how do you think, Tom, looking, that, that is going to, well, it's fairly obvious, but how do you think that impacts on the mental health aspects of claimants? Well, yeah, I mean, it comes back to what I was saying in the beginning in that it, and like and like you touched upon with other um aspects of the welfare system is that it I've, it becomes cyclical in the way that individuals with these mental health conditions come for financial aid and yet the the systems which are meant to provide that aid exacerbate their conditions that so then you're cr not only are you creating undue stress on that particular individual but it also becomes inefficient as a system because you are creating more problems for your the, the system itself further down the line because you are exacerbating the problem he's suggesting that the process as it stands at the moment is really perpetuating and worsening people's mental health who it's designed to to hopefully alleviate but support 
yeah, as as it stands, this the PIP application process, which this report is focused on, it currently does not cater adequately to those with mental health conditions. Thinking about your report and the recommendations that you made, Tom. Yeah. In an ideal world, what would you do differently? What would you say to um, the government and the decision makers at the moment who are, are looking at the disability benefit system? As how does PIP need to be changed to work better? I think there's a there's a broad spectrum of things that can change, and some of them are quite small and feasible, I would say. And then on, obviously on the other end, you've got more systemic structural change. But I think one of the some of the things that stand out to me would be that broadly it needs to accommodate mental health to a much higher standard and this would involve things like ensuring that all staff and assessors are adequately trained in mental health so they're better equipped to deal with these individuals and they're also you know they know they know more about what they're dealing with rather than just checking off certain things on a list yeah yeah um i also feel like the criteria within the initials form and but also within the assessment can be changed or reworked into questions which are more accommodating of mental health so mental health is as much a deciding factor where appropriate as physical health is so do you think to think of that is that a restructuring of the form in itself is it a form at all is it just that you say i want you to assess perhaps my medical records how do you see that working? Oh, well, that's the thing. I'm on, I guess on the smaller side of change, that would include a restructuring of the form. So rewording the questions and making sure there's questions that are more inclusive of mental health. So a lot more straightforward in what they're saying. No hidden agendas, Yeah, exactly. More, more manageable. And not needing that expertise in deciphering exactly what the question means before you give an answer. Yeah, I was just going to say on the on the other side of things you mentioned about medical evidence, and I think that that touches upon another suggestion in this report that is currently as it stands, the burden of supplying medical evidence is often placed on the applicant. Yeah, and this is, this is this becomes especially hard in a system which is quite fragmented, so you can. You can go to your GP, but they not might not be able to supply it kind of thing. You have local mental health charities, for example. There's no surefire way in which an applicant can receive this medical evidence, and often this needs to be paid for if you're getting it from a GP, for example. That is the thing, that quite often the evidence is costly in itself because, yes, a patient can request their medical records, but really just... The black and white statement of a medical record isn't necessarily going to help with a, an assessment for disability benefit because saying you have a condition doesn't tell the benefit decision maker how that condition affects you, what you need ideally, and, and in a good case you'd get a doctor who is supportive. But you need yeah. that backup letter from your doctor, from a consultant at hospital, from a mental health worker, a CPN, a nurse, whoever is involved with you to say what they observe about how your condition affects you in your day-to-day life. So that's where the, the as you say, quite rightly, the, the medical evidence side of things does fall down in this sense, that there's no continuity, there's not necessarily any structure to the system as it stands. And you are at the mercy of what sort of GP you've got and yep. whether you can afford to 
pay your GP for a letter because a lot of clients, a lot of claimants can't, can they? It's expensive to do when you are choosing between putting £5 on the gas meter and paying £50 for a doctor's letter. What are you going to do? And I think I think you touched on the, the main issue with it being it's too, as it stands, it's too situational on, on factors such as your GP and your relationship with them and things like that. So I think it does. if it's too situational, then you're, you're inevitably going to get um, many clients who fall through the cracks within the system. And that is another aspect that some people are living with long-term conditions which do have a significantly detrimental impact on their health, but they might not necessarily have been to see their GP within the last month because they're managing their health. Um, there's yep. no change to it, so there's no need to see a GP, so therefore the evidence isn't necessarily there, is it? No, that's true, and it's the, it comes back to the the issue where um, a lot of clients have the trouble whereby they need to have a kind of up-to-date proof that they have the conditions that they they are claiming to have but this includes think when it comes to mental health it becomes a bit more blurry in the sense that you might not be currently for example taking certain medication for if for example if you are on antidepressants or what or having anxiety or whatnot um, but for whatever reason, if you're not having taken this medication and you're doing other forms of self-care, then this, this does not lend itself to evidencing your condition. That's right. Um, so it's all about what you said before about the training of the people who are doing the assessment and having a knowledge, a wider knowledge of how conditions are likely to impact on your ability to function in your daily life and treating the claimant as an individual rather than trying to categorize everyone because conditions will affect people differently and some people will cope where others can't won't they yeah absolutely and i i think that's a really important point in this in the fact that a lot of these individuals have complex needs there's not one which way of categorizing someone's uh, mental and physical health because there's a lot of overlapping conditions so I think having a system that is better equipped to kind of recognize these nuances is is would be a, a big step in improving the system for these individuals definitely I suppose we're making these suggestions and for good reasons but the counter argument may be the suggestions that we're making could be expensive to implement for the taxpayer yeah what is your response to that sort of argument? My response would be, well, firstly, I think one of the suggestions that is in the report is targeted at, as previously mentioned, the fact that tribunals and courts have to process a lot of the... The appeals that are coming through. The appeals, yeah. yes, if they fail, getting them through the mandatory reconsideration. So this report suggests that by streamlining the process and making mandatory reconsideration more effective, you are therefore cutting costs um, in the area of courts. So you're actually, um, as it stands, saving the taxpayers some money in that regard. Definitely, because it's not cheap to run a court. The tribunal in this case is made up of three members. You've got, obviously, the the building costs, you've got the utility costs of having that courtroom open, and then the people who are running the service as well, haven't you? So, yeah, and the administration in between times, that is a cost saving. More fundamentally, if decisions are being made which are more appropriate in the first instance, you save costs on the decision makers that are having to review the decisions at the mandatory consideration stage, surely. Yeah. What we're saying is a more efficient system saves its own money down the line because you're not going through that challenging process. Yeah, exactly. And I think also to 
pan out a little bit to what I was saying earlier is about setting up so you are you are not creating more problems further down the road if you are better equipping and helping these individuals now so as it stands you are you are kind of perpetuating the system by not giving these individuals the help they need so then the, the conditions are never going to improve that that's a good point that if you are allowing people who perhaps have short to medium term conditions if you are not giving them such a hard time in making the claim initially that you give them that space to then recover in their physical or mental health don't you and in doing so they are um to use a popular expression amongst government circles at the moment building back better within their own lives aren't they yeah conversely as we've we've touched on that if you are haranguing people for regular reviews you're setting their recovery back and they are on that benefit for longer yeah no i I, i'd agree with that completely is there anything else you are suggesting from this uh, report tom so other than what i've already said i think one of the things on which is easier to implement is there needs to be more openness in terms of allowing uh, applicants to for example bring families or close ones to the assessment stage or involving them more within the process as a whole because I feel like it's quite an isolating process and citizens advice is often helping individuals who cannot cannot go through the process alone so if I feel like if the process had more inbuilt mechanisms to to increase its accessibility for people are you are you thinking there that the the family the relative the friend would come along as support for the assessment are you thinking they would give evidence towards the claim or both or what what are you thinking with that recommendation tom yeah so um primarily in terms of allowing them to come to the assessment because it's citizens advice clients has been a, perhaps one of the most consistent viewpoints is that it's a very stressful very anxiety inducing process and it can be made made less intimidating by allowing someone who's familiar to um accompany you on the, in that process i think they are at the moment, but I think the issue with the the level of support that they're allowed to give is minimal. I think it is just a presence there, isn't it? And I think yeah. from some of the case studies that formed part of your report highlighted that where a family member perhaps wanted to help explain what a claimant was thinking, feeling, how their condition affects them, they, they may be shut down by the assessor who only wants to listen to the, the claimant. Yeah which yeah, in terms of empowering the claimant is good, but if you, you can obviously see that someone's distressed and are unable to articulate what they mean or are unable to offer you as much advice as someone else sitting next to them can, there's no real reason why you couldn't accept that that support from a family member, is there? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think I think also it's about, um, in for example, in the initial forms stage, if the process better equips the applicant to complete it so just making it the process smoother so it doesn't need to include as many external sources of help which it currently does because it's so overly complex and things like that and you mean in that respect people could need to come to citizens advice for the support to do it don't you yeah and that again feeds back into yeah making a straightforward form one that is easy to understand for people and one where you know what the questions are asking and and what you need to say in response to them so yeah definitely is there anything else that you want to add tom anything that you've found interesting a particularly striking 
from your time spending looking at these issues? Other than what I've already said, I think it just comes down to, for me, the fact that obviously, his, like, historically, mental health has not been treated with a, the same level of seriousness as other things within the UK. And I think, I think that these benefit systems highlight that quite starkly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think if, if, especially with the push that society is making towards saying things about the importance of mental health, etc., etc., I think that this would be a concrete area with, with, within which to improve. To show your commitment to doing that. Yeah, exactly. How we improve uh, our outlook on mental health in, in a very, yeah, like you said, in a very concrete way. I think that's a really good point that it's a, a tangible demonstration of commitment to supporting people with mental health conditions so yeah i think that's a really valuable thing to draw out from that i'm really grateful for you joining us today tom thank you very much for your time in talking about this and, and indeed i know i thanked you before but thank you again for for your time and expertise in compiling this report it's been really valuable and hopefully as listeners have found it's um, something that definitely we hope the government and decision makers will act on and uh, when they're looking at their green paper review I hope that they implement some of the suggestions that you're making in this report. So thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. It's been a good experience writing this report. It's, um, obviously, like I said before, I didn't know much about the process, so it's, ta- it's taught me a lot and given me a good insight into what people with mental health issues have to deal with when going through the process. Definitely. Uh, I think that's, that's really important in itself that people do come to a wider understanding of how benefit claimants are treated. Yeah, absolutely. The popular press might paint a particular picture of benefit claimants which isn't accurate and which we wouldn't support uh, from our experience. Um, so anything that we can do to highlight the, the reality of the system is really beneficial for us. So thank you again. Yeah, no, thank you. It's been a great experience. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sound Advice. If you've got any questions or comments, as always, feel free to drop us an email at soundadvice at nedcab.org.uk or you can also follow us on Twitter at any Derbyshire CAB. Thank you.